Welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. Today, we have a very special episode for you. This is episode 199. And while we've done certainly like 35 or so tools of type one episodes back in 2018, we're coming up on episode 200, which is a pretty cool milestone for us uh, and for me. Uh, but today's guest is Mary Mosier. She's a type one diabetic and she's a licensed marriage and family therapist. And we've been talking a lot about mental health. Uh, we had a mental health awareness month uh, and series on the podcast and Eritrea who's here with me and I have, have discussed mental health and, and the burden that diabetes places on that uh, at length, but we've never had an expert like Mary. We've had some other uh, you know, clinical psychologists, but this discussion was really on the trauma of being diagnosed with diabetes and the effects that it can have on you long-term. And I really think that you're going to gravitate to Mary. She's uh, just a really great presence. And I know I walked away from this interview feeling better than when I came in. I think we both learned a lot, right? How the way that I think something we talk about a lot on the podcast is that initial response to being diagnosed. And we finally got some answers to that question and just more things around the grief of diagnosis. So we learned a lot and I'm excited for everyone else to listen to this episode and learn with us. Yes, indeed. And, you know, we cover a lot of topics, uh, really that there's no one way to manage your diabetes, that there's a lot of toxic positivity in the community and how to avoid that. Uh, and then just getting into the trauma and the grief that you have to deal with uh, after a diagnosis and, you know, what the first few minutes, like you just mentioned, can, can mean for the rest of your life with diabetes, especially for the first few years. Uh, but Mary also provided us with a lot of resources uh, that we've included in the show notes. So this is a very practical episode. If you want to check those out, just check out the show notes or uh, check out the podcast on diabeticsdoingthings.com slash podcast. All right. Enjoy this interview with Mary Mosher. Welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We are telling the amazing stories of people with diabetes from all over the world. Uh, very excited for our guest today, Mary Mosher, LMFT, Licensed Marriage and Therapy Oh, and therapist, uh, sorry, and family therapist. I wrote in my notes, therapy therapist, which is uh, a very different and <laughs> maybe overly descriptive title, but that's me. Uh, Mary, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course. We're so excited. We're so excited. Mary speaks English and Spanish. She is bilingual. And I feel like all of her content out there is available for people who speak English and Spanish. You've been so interesting to me on the internet. I think, Rob, I didn't tell you this, but when I was trying to make friends in the diabetic online community, I DM'd Mary and I was like, hi, I really like your content. I think you're really cool. Please be my friend. And I think that's yes. <laughs> how we started being friends. So yeah, a little yeah. backstory there. Yeah. Isn't it nice? And it like, came so during the, um, I think the Women of Color Diabetes Challenge. I think that's kind of when we met. Yeah, that was awesome. How important are those, right? Like, because, you know, both of you are very involved uh, on the internet and diabetes communities, and yet it took a challenge for you both to get introduced to each other. So those are good. That's, uh, I'm just going to plant that seed. If you're listening to that, listen to this, and you are responsible for one of those challenges. Let's bring them back. Let's make them happen. <laughs> um, so Mary, uh, you have lived with type one diabetes for 34 years. Uh, uh, on your, on Mary Mosher therapy, your Instagram account, you say a level 34 type one diabetics, <laughs> which I love. Yeah. Uh, why don't we start with your, uh, your diagnosis and, and what you remember and how you came to join the, the type one diabetes family? Yeah. So, um, I have an older brother who's about, um, two years older than me. Um, so when my parents, um, had me, I think they, um, instinctly kind of knew, well, this something is wrong. Let's run some tests. Um, they didn't have like the, 
the understanding of what type one was. And I think a lot of the providers we were working with at that time never really thought to um, test for, for type one, right? So they were like, okay, allergies, this or that, or let's check, um, you know, just varying kind of tests and always really just kind of skipping that where my parents were like, but she complains of this, she's always thirsty. Um, she has a sweet breath. Like I remember my, my parents would even tell me um, that anytime like we were going anywhere and uh, they were going to put on the seatbelt, I would say like, but my tummy hurts. Um, and it was like also like my abdomen hurting. So um, I began to sleep a lot and kind of lose a lot of weight. And, and my parents were just kind of like, there's something wrong. What are we not asking for? Um, and it just so happened that um, both my brother and I were under the weather. He had a, a high temperature um, that wasn't going down. So they took him and I to urgent care, but really thinking like, gosh, why is his temperature not going down? And the person that saw my brother um, in urgent care had a background with diabetes. And they were like, yes, I mean, obviously you're, my brother's a concern and his high temperature, but they're like, we need to run some tests on your daughter. And my parents were just like, yes let's do this. Um, and like that day, um, I was transferred to um, the Children's Hospital of Orange, and I was there for um, a little over two weeks. Um, and it was really, it was really hard for, for my family. And um, there was a lot of people visiting, a lot of people poking and prodding um, and it is a children's hospital. So they try to be lovely and try to be helpful. Right. And but things are happening so fast, different faces coming in, um, you know, talking to you, touching you and um, all of those things kind of happening. So that is, I know, I think I had like a really hypersensitivity to being in medical spaces when I was a kid for sure. Um, so that's like, a large portion of, of my story. Um, but I don't know how much more you want me to share. Well, I actually, so a little bit about you is like, you come from a multicultural background. Not, so it's like, you know, yes. I think, is it your mom that's white and your dad's Mexican? Um, so my dad is of, of European descent and uh, Mexican and my mom is Mexican. Um, and um yeah, so I'm like very mixed. <laughs> um, and I think when you look at me visually, because my skin is lighter, it's not always so obvious of like when you think of someone being uh, mixed race or multi-ethnic or whatever language you prefer to yeah. or ethnicity. Um, but um, it, it was How definitely handle hard. It? Yeah, it was definitely hard, um, especially my mom's English isn't that great. Um, she's like, you know, she's a, her writing and reading skills are amazing, but her, her, um, speaking skills, um, are a little bit, a little bit harder, um, cause she learned English a little bit later in life. So, um, there is definitely a, like an overt understanding at a very young age of like the inequities of being with like my light skinned dad versus my, my tan mom. Um, with limited English, right? So there's definitely that that I learned at a very young age, as far as like even um, school, like when I was running late, if I was with my dad, people are like, oh yeah, yeah, that's fine. Oh, you don't have a late notice or like, who's this? Or just the um, the actions of folks that are supposed to be helping you 
um, was definitely very clear. And I didn't know a lot of uh, people in my community. I grew up in a, in a Latinx community for the most part. And I think that even in, in my family systems and my ex extended family, there's kind of like, Ooh, don't teach them Spanish or don't. And, uh, and on the other spectrum, it was like, yes, teach them both or like raise them this way or raise them that way. So, um, and just even, like I said, what, what we see in community and how you're treated differently based on what you look like, which does definitely still happen today. Um, definitely was something that I was aware of way younger than anyone really should have to be, but a reality of, of, of this world for sure. So with what? diagnosis and with your mom, sorry, Rob, and with your mom, not like speaking a ton of English, because I can definitely relate to that. I felt at times that I was not, I had to like, you were three, right? So you're so small and your dad spoke English. So did it feel like you were still in some ways translating all the time or as you started to get older, like they're your primary caretakers, but because you understand English the best since you were born here, whatever, Yeah. are you like that responsibility even as a really young child? Yeah. So if we were like with our mom, definitely we would be uh, translating. Um, but for most visits, I know my, my parents did a good job in, in the way that everyone, it was like a whole team thing. And I don't know that my siblings were excited about it, but when anytime I had to go visit my endo at chalk, um, my sister would be pulled out of, of class. My brother would be pulled out of class and it, we would all go together. Um, and I think that that effort for them was obviously probably no, there was no other person that could pick us up because we lived really far away from family. But then also, I think they were just trying to be like, it's okay that you're, you're diabetic and like, it, I was never comfortable really with getting um, like checkups with uh, uh, like male providers. I knew that very young, like just felt really uncomfortable. So they were always in the room with me, even into like my teens. Um, Cause uh, that they, they were always just very present in like every medical decision. Um, so um, I, I think that that was something that they did well, where they were like, okay, we're all going, you're going to get blood work, we're going to wait here, there's a, a room where we're going to wait, like, I'm going to take your brother and sister outside, mom's going to be here, dad's going to be here, um, where they try to kind of like normalize the best they could, um, that I that I was diabetic, but I obviously knew that there was like stress and tension and lack of sleep all around. Um, cause kids are aware, even when we don't have language for sure that uh, like, okay, like I'm causing people stress. <laughs> so, and, and yeah. I'd, I'd love to, just because of your expertise uh, on this, on this matter. And obviously you like your yeah. firsthand experience as a, as a patient, uh, as mm -hmm. a person with diabetes, mm -hmm. there's so much trauma associated and grief associated with a diagnosis. Um, yeah. and, and like you said, like your family, like your brother was there in the hospital with you, like during diagnosis, you sort of did things as a family unit and had like a team kind of structure around that. Do you think that that was just unique to your family? Do you think that that, uh, or, you know, unique because you guys were kind of all there at the same time, were able to do that together. I'm sure that, um, you know, like you said, there's a spectrum of how people like to manage that. Some people I think are more lone wolf and they like to sort of manage it and keep yeah. it very close. Um, but yeah, maybe yeah. just on a, on a bigger, just sort of a, a higher level perspective, the relationship between diabetes and trauma and grief uh, and mourning your sort of old life, even if you were diagnosed very young. 
Yeah. So uh, as far as like my story, um, and then I can certainly speak to just like medical trauma in general, um, because I think it, 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 it's not, it's a definite knowing uh, of something that's happening to you, right? So when we're talking about trauma, it is something that happens so rapidly, whether it's an event or for others, it might be like continually ongoing. Um, and that's definitely affecting our nervous system, our sense of the world. Um, and, and when we put um, our level of access, right? So we're adding all these different intersections, how, what level of privilege, um, what, how do people perceive me based on my skin, based on my language, my race, uh, my sexuality, right? My, um, my ability to communicate, right? Or um, people are really looking um, and treating us different based on all those things. So I would never tell someone like, well, just work on, on this or do this when they don't have adequate resources, right? So I know for, my, for me personally, as a therapist, um, we are looking at all those things that are affecting our wellness, that are affecting our, our experience of trauma. Um, I know for me, like um, growing up, I think my parents, it, it, for them, it was like, yes, we need to do this together. Um, and that really helped me feel a little bit more normal, um, whatever that really means um, in, in the <laughs> yeah. way that I saw myself as opposed to other kids, right? So even like my growing up experience, I was the kid that had to go check her blood sugar at recess. None of my friends or kids in my class had to do that. I was a kid that had a, you know, I, I used MDI. Um, so I had to miss a little bit of lunch to give myself my shot and then go back, you know, um, to the lunch table. So there was always this um, like caution and awareness that I had as, as a little one. So that certainly does affect the way that you move in the world. Um, I know with folks that I've worked with that were diagnosed in their 20s, so maybe college students uh, with type one or maybe a different type of, uh, of diabetes where you have this idea of the world or, or idea of how you're going to move in it or like what your goals are going to look like. And that can significantly, any kind of medical diagnosis really is going to affect the way you move through the world. And, and, and some, because of our lived experience, some of us don't have uh, the, the safe space um, or emotional support to be able to grieve it, to know that we can grieve it, that that's part of, a, a, of having a, con a condition, a medical condition or any kind of um, traumatic experience. So that, I think well, that gets missed a lot for sure. You mentioned this earlier as well about being children and, and not really having the language or not being able to verbalize or articulate what we're going through, but we know inherently yeah. inside. Um, and, and I think part of that too, tying into what you just mentioned is when you're young, and I mean, I guess really this never sort of is a human condition, regardless of age is being different and, and being othered because of your differences. Like there's a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety and a lot of real social challenges, like assimilating yeah. to a social group as a disabled person or a person who used to not have a disability and then now has to adjust to their, their space in the world. And I think especially for young people, teens, children, people in college, but also even adults, that can be you know the, the first real big hurdle uh, into, in adjusting 
to the non-clinical portion of diabetes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Bit, I, I, I guess what what do you see when you when you talk to your patients about you know these types of things? So I know with like really people of varying ages, I know for little ones. So I purposely um wear my insulin pump and my CGM in really overt places that everyone can always see um, as 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 a way to kind of show um, support for people with medical conditions. So maybe I'm working with a little one or a teenager that's like, no girl's going to like me or no person's going to like me or no, uh, or who would ever date me? Because, you know, like when we think about disabilities and ableism, like, what are we being told about having this condition? Right. Um, and then someone thinking like, well, I have this pump or I have this thing now. Um, people are going to treat me different. And some people do like some people stare, they question. I know for me, um, I have like a really high tolerance for that. And I use that as an educational moment where I'm like, oh, that's my CGM. That's an insulin pump. I am diabetic. So next time you see someone, maybe a little one, you might want to be mindful about how you're looking at them. Um, or maybe the way that you, you know, like if you do want to ask, like, Instead of staring, because that can be really affect someone. Um, it can't, it's so it nice. How do you do that, Mary? I feel like people when they're like, "Why are you beeping?" I just want to punch them in the eye. Like, why are you asking <laughs> questions? How about well, that? Like, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you said that because I think it all that also exists on a spectrum. And sometimes it's just like, "Did you get a good night's sleep?" or "What how, are they the second person that's asked you that today, or the third, or maybe yeah. or, or are you feeling a little bit more?" Vulnerable? You know, honestly, like on my. I don't, I don't, I don't have the capacity. I don't have the emotional bandwidth today. Um, I will. Um, so today I'm wearing my insulin pump on my upper uh, left thigh, but I, what I've done is actually write with a Sharpie and put, this is my insulin pump. I will literally write that. Um, I've done that so many times and I've seen people like when I go to uh, like coffee um, shops or restaurants where someone's like, and then, and I could hear them. You're like literally at the next table. Um, and then they're like, oh, it's an insulin pump. Oh, she's wearing an insulin pump. <laughs> and then that like, just everyone's good now that you can stop staring and it's not a problem. Sometimes it bothers me, but for the most part, I'm kind of like, I'm doing this service because I know how hard it is for some of the people that I've worked. Right. And I remember in high school, I'm still with MDI. Um, at one point, I think it was my junior year where I was like, I am not walking to the nurse's station anymore. I'm just not doing it. So I would just, I would take my glucometer, like I would, you know, and inject myself like in the corner of the room. I wouldn't go to the bathroom anymore. I'm like, I'm just like over having to accommodate. Oh, does that hurt? So then at, at that point, I was just kind of like, I'm over it. I'm going to inject myself in the back of the classroom in grad school. Everyone knew. Um, at that point, I was just kind of like, uh, for safety reasons, people should know. And, and you definitely don't have to do that. Like whatever your comfortability level is, um, you know, do what works best for you. Um, but at one point I was like, I'm not going to hide this very big part of me, um, for someone else's comfort. So, and then because I hear people have like really bad, horrible (laughs) date stories or like they called me a sick girl or a sick boy, or they called me this or that. I'm like, no, that's not okay. Like what kind of people are we raising? So if, if I can help in that way, I'll do that. Like for me, it's not a problem. Well, I I think too, like having to 
grow into some of that too. Uh, like if mm-hmm. you're not in that place yet, I think it's okay. I yeah, also, absolutely. you know, it feels, it feels uncomfortable to be different and it feels very uncomfortable to be. And I think sometimes feels embarrassing or like you're on stage or like everyone's looking at you yeah. when you highlight something different. And, so, and as you were describing, like people kind of talking about the the words written on your insulin pump and then, you know, kind of checking that box and you sort of now know that they're talking about it and now you're having an, a little awkward exchange. Like that awkwardness still exists, even if you're outwardly confident and even if you're comfortable. Yeah, totally. And, and I, you know, it, I, I think it's, it's easy for us to be on a podcast and say, yeah, every opportunity that someone doesn't know is an opportunity to educate and, and bring people no. in. But I also struggle with, you know, days where I just don't feel like being interrupted or I don't feel like having sometimes I just want to be right. Yeah. You just yeah. Be. I just want to yeah. exist. Yeah. 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 And, and I think hence, hence the, why I just write it on my pump because I'm yeah. like, I don't, I don't have the bandwidth this week, but there's other weeks where I'm kind of like, yeah. And I would really encourage you to be mindful of the way that you're looking at folks. And I don't do that all the time. So it's not like my fifth day job. Um, but I, I think sometimes it, it can certainly make a little bit of a difference to make someone make, help them be more aware, especially when I'm hearing stories from folks that I'm working with that someone's like, oh, I don't, can we just end the day early? Hmm. Right. And that's like the, the, the hard end of the spectrum where people are just kind of like, oof, you have an illness. Anti, imagine being anti-sick people. That's crazy. That's yeah. Crazy. Cause there are like, people. And I've actually, unfortunately, I've also heard other like people with medical conditions, diabetic and not where they were like, oh, I wouldn't date someone who also has this. I, and I'm well, like, what does that say about the internalized ableism that you have? Also, oh, like man. you are one di- you are one phone call, baby, from being disabled. Like none of us woke up yesterday and we're like, oh, one day we're going to be sick. None of us. We just happened. So like, what do you mean? Yeah. Sis? That's so weird. Well, I, you know, internalized is right. And I mean, I th- a lot of that comes from society. A lot of that comes from just, you know, we're we're all trying to fit in exactly. to a certain extent. We all want to be, uh, yeah. you know, everybody wants something different, I think, but Mostly, I think yeah. that we want to be accepted for who we are fully, and it's Definitely. difficult. And I, I think you're right. Like, I've heard people say, "Oh, well, you know, I, I don't want to have kids because I don't want to risk, you know, a, a child having diabetes." And I'm like, you know, I understand that perspective, and I, and you know, I, I agree. Life with diabetes is hard, but if you know, I think again, it comes back to priorities and like what you're, what you want. And also, I think this is something I really want to touch on because. I am an optimist and I think that's a strength and a weakness sometimes is because I'll get overly mm-hmm. optimistic about ability to do things or ability Speak to on it. things go going well, right. And not leave room for maybe, you know, a hiccup or a roadblock here and there. Um, but there's also that balance of not wanting to be toxically positive. And I think that there are some, yeah. s- some narratives yeah. that some that I've said on this podcast, I've said on this podcast, I've been guilty of, of like, you can do whatever you want with diabetes and you can, you know, live the life that you want. But also I inherently was genetic. I want the genetic lottery winner. I'm super tall and athletic and, uh, and was born to a family with means. So I have advantages mm-hmm. that other people don't. And so like, it's important to recognize like the ableist, you know, pillars of society, which are, oh, people who are good looking and athletic or whatever, get scholarship opportunities that other people don't. And that's just the way that it is. Uh, and then mm-hmm. without saying like, oh, you can't do this, uh, you know, or, or, you know, setting up barriers. So I guess like, how do you help people remain optimistic and positive without going into that sort of toxic territory? Yeah. So I think it's important to 
be able to hold space for both, right? So I'm not going to just tell someone like, "Mm, we really need to work on that negative thinking. Like, what was your lived experience that this is what you learned? And what are, what are the things that are no longer serving you? Right. Um, And what are the pieces that we do need to unlearn? So if someone told you like, Hey, no one would ever want to be with you because you are diabetic, because you have lupus or um, because you have this medical condition or what have you, that's, that's that person's belief, not yours. And we can learn not to take that on. Right. Or if we're just talking about like a physical attribute where you have to be this size or you have to be this body type. The reality is that we're socialized to believe that bodies should look like this, that this skin color is better, that this butt size is better. These thighs are better, whatever. Right. But like, what do you actually find attractive? What do you actually like about your body? So if I'm working with somebody that really is struggling with like per se, like body dysmorphia, And they're telling me like, Mary, I just think that every part about me is just so disgusting. So I'm not going to tell them, tell yourself you're beautiful 10 times a day. I would not do that. Um, For someone, it might be helpful, right? So what I would do, I would do is talk, talk to them about like, tell me about what your body does for you. That is good. And we start there. Well, my body allows me to swim. That's great. Mm. Maybe I don't have mobility in this part of my body, but I'm able to be creative with this part of my body. Right. Um, so start there and then hold space for that duality of what the realities are life that that is life, that there is goodness. And then there's also harm, there is pain and there is also joy. Right. So especially with everything that is so amplified of what's going on with the world and people just are, are more insightful and aware of it now just even that piece, like, gosh, there's a lot of harm, but I'm not going to allow this horridness that's happening in the world to allow me to give up. Um, Because I, I, I hear a lot of really painful stories sometimes, and I've seen people's life, um, you know, lived experience, you know, where it's not fair, not fair at all, like what, what's happened to them. But I do see the hope in the way that they want to move through and how, how they heal, um, and how I can be experiencing pain and, and also joy and also goodness. And, um, so again, like that, that duality of gosh, there's hardships and there's also goodness. Um, I have depression and I also have this amazing person in my life. I have diabetes, um, and I have these resources. I have this person that, that can be my go-to, right? So feeling like I think it can be really helpful to know that you're not the only one. And I think that's why podcasts like these are so great where you're just like, okay, I can relate to what Mary's saying, or like, I get what Eritrea is saying or what Rob is saying. Cause that was my experience when I was a teenager or like, oh, someone gets it. Cause we do feel so alone when we're going through hardship and we think like, gosh, how am I going to surpass this? Right. But it is very possible. Um, I know some people don't have as much access. So then what, what it, what do I have control of? What can I do given what I have? Um, and I think that 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 mind shift can be helpful, especially when we, we have resources coming in. Um, so I don't well, know if I just went off on a tangent. No, but I just, 
No, you said so much that I was just. I know. Like, oh, I'm like right. sometimes I'm like, am I going to get people to digest what I'm saying? I, I'm like, yeah, Benita said me llorar. Like I feel, I was like, damn, bro, I'm gonna cry. Like, stop, Mary. Well, I just think I think it's such an like humans are so complicated, and there's so many layers to us, and I think it's really interesting, like living in today where we live in a very polarized, you know, news cycle and social media, and um, it can be really you know, we're unfortunately like manipulated into having strong reactions one way or another um, and kind of getting, we can get into these insular chambers where we only share things that we agree with and that just becomes so dangerous and it can set up a really difficult patterns for us. But what's so interesting to me about this, your discussion of like life and lived experience and how it's so different from person to person, that's so applicable to a life with diabetes because there really is no one way to manage like, and, and I'm grateful okay. that there are multiple podcasts and multiple treatment methods and multiple thought schools of thought uh, on whether, you know, that's food or dieting or exercise or uh, multiple options on CGM and alerts and sharing and things like that. So mm -hmm. you can, if you have the access, which is a huge part of it, you can, mm -hmm. you know, assemble your community, you can assemble your uh, therapy, you can assemble, mm -hmm. you know, your outlook and adapt it to your lived experience. You know, again, if you have the access. So you know, what do you, how do you, when you're talking to people with diabetes specifically, like you kind of get into those cycles of grief, like acceptance and like depression and anger, like we, it's a cycle, like we go through them on a, on a regular basis, you know, how do you kind of meet people where they are and kind of help them navigate that cycle? I, I really like, as we think about like that grief cycle, I, 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 I see it more as a suggestion, honestly because everybody's grief experience is different, right? So um, someone may need to be in their anger or may need to be in denial for purposes of survival, for hmm. purposes of functioning, um, or maybe we don't have the space where we can do that because we need to move or we need to keep going. Um, so I, I definitely talk about that, like what feels safe and okay in this moment for you where we can begin. So that would be maybe my, my, my first question. So I'm, I'm not going to tell someone, I think you need to grieve this. Mm. Um, I might just want to know a little bit about their story and what, what their worry is to be in their caution to open up or not open up. Right. So if we have lived experiences where we weren't met well with certain emotions or Maybe your dad, Rob, was like, yes, come to me when when you're sad. Let me hold you. Let me help you. Um, I know my dad was like that. Like, tell me about it. But if I would have had the opposite experience, right, with a, a, a dad that perhaps had a lot of internal stuff happening where they couldn't deal with their own emotions, that that dad may have, like, shushed me away or, like, my life is harder, which I know sometimes... Um, happens culturally. We're like, I came to this country to give you a better life. Why are you complaining? Mm. Right. So I walked from like, Africa to come <laughs> here. How dare you? Anyway, yeah. I get it. Right. <laughs> so, so, so someone has that kind of lived experience. We talk about it like, wow, that, that, that made you feel like sadness was not good, that your anger was overwhelming. And that, and that makes it hard for you now that makes it hard for you to express how you're feeling 
So just even acknowledging those things, I think can make a such, such a big difference as, as a, a way to kind of open the space a little bit. I, I really, since we're going to talk about my dad, I, I also, it, it brings up different things as well as like parents are people too at different yeah. points in their own journeys, they're, you know, maybe grieving you know, themselves and, or in, in other cycles. And I, and I think, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about therapy stigma uh, and, and, you know, what to do or some advice for, for people who have been recently diagnosed, but, you know, to share a little bit of uh, personal stuff on my dad's side is like, you know, when I was born, I, I knew my dad as a different guy than my half sister did, who was uh, 18 years older than me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a lot of things that they had to work through because my dad was not available and uh, was, you know, an alcoholic and was absent in her life. Mm-hmm. And fortunately for me and my brother and my sister and my mom, mm-hmm. he got a second chance to to correct some of the things that he did and didn't do right. And he got a, you know, got a chance to reinvent himself. And unfortunately, that didn't change my sister's childhood where he was absent and where he was hurtful and where he was, uh, you know, a piece of shit, you know. And so, mm-hmm. uh, and at the same time, like they were able to reconcile later in life and develop a different relationship. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think I think that your story can change too. Um, and and that's, uh, you know, whether that's your, your own story related to diabetes, whether that's relation, relationship in your life of any kind, whether family or otherwise, yeah, you know, that healing is possible. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Um, and I think that that's why I focus so much in the work that I do specifically around trauma and inner child healing or attachment work, right? Because we don't all have the best of experiences growing up. And I think that that is also like a duality of healing where your parents may have done the best that they could and still caused a whole ton of harm. Mm. And again, not to blame your parents um, or, or my parents or anybody else's parents, but just to really acknowledge that like they, they, they were trying um, and they still hurt me. Um, and how do I want to move forward from that? What, what, what can I take? What strengths can I take from my family system? If there were any, some people don't grow up in spaces where there were any, right? So then my experience of trauma with my family has taught me that I don't want to be like that, that I don't want to repeat this cycle, that I want to have compassion, that I want to grow in a way that I'm not repeating this pattern. And, and, and that's where that comes in, in our healing work where what parts of me do I need to hold and take care of and validate? Um, And how can I be curious about maybe for those that maybe didn't have the best therapy experiences or group therapy experiences, like how can I be curious about the idea that there is the right provider out there Mm -hmm. for me? Um, Or even if we were in not the best kind of relationship, how can I be um, mindful of, the kind of people I engage with or why um, I lean in towards people that aren't that great. And it's not usually because you're like, yes, I love me a toxic person. <laughs> um, it's kind of like the, the, that, that energy or that behavior feels familiar, right? Because maybe that energy or behavior was very reminiscent of our growing upness. Um, so it's like a pattern I guess, I don't know. I don't want to like deviate too much from what you guys are talking about, but I did 
it does make me think about something that Rob's always talking about on this podcast, which is like, because right now we're talking about how like something you're living now isn't even really what you're living, right? You're like reliving a past trauma, a past experience over yeah. and over again. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. in correlation to like diabetes, something mm-hmm. Rob's always talking about is how like the first 20 minutes of your diagnosis are so important to mm-hmm. a person with diabetes. So is it possible from your you know expertise that if those first 20 minutes were terrible, that you're just like going, like it's much harder to go through the rest of your life now with this chronic condition because of that initial bad experience so that can certainly or, be or good experience yeah. so it, it it really like depends on 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 the person but if you came across where people were automatically blaming you or telling your parents that they failed or that you failed or like why are you eating this way or why like so even like in the medical system there's like a lot of stigma <laughs> stigmas and right lack and of like education. we and, and me specifically like I. Mm-hmm. I'm very happy with the progress that we've made. People that were diagnosed today have, in I say in general, much better resources yeah. than when yeah. I was diagnosed or you were years ago. Yes. But at the same time, like to say that this exact situation doesn't happen regularly would be an oversight. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. And 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 again, because I work with uh, folks that are multi-ethnic or that are in the Latinx community, where maybe they don't have access to the best level of care, um, or maybe the la- language. Um, is an issue like for sure um, if we have a traumatic experience medically it is going to affect our level of trust with our providers or how comfortable we are with talking to them about questions that we, we may have or things that we're struggling with if they're coming at us in a way that is like why do you have lows all the time why do you have highs all the time or what's wrong with so if someone's talking to you that way that's clearly indicating that they're not really trying to collaborate um, and I think that's something to pay attention to if we're able to, right? Um, I'm, I really want to request a different provider. Um, I don't feel like we're working collaboratively. I, I had that actually happen when I had a, a change of insurance where I was like, look, I've been di- living with diabetes this long. Um, and I'm like, are you the provider that's going to work with me as a team? I don't want the, the way that you're talking to me is not going to work. Right. And I, and because of where I am today with, with my, my own inner work, with my own self-advocacy, I can say that, but what about someone that has never felt safe to speak in the system of medical care? Then they're not going to be like skipping and skipping um, appointments. And even youth that I work with, they're like, I don't check myself, whatever. Well, and and I think too, like... (laughs) You it, that wasn't easy for you to say, even though you have the it wasn't, it's and not. you have the credentials and you have the, the mm-hmm. confidence. I imagine, like in your stomach, in that moment, I could see it on your face yeah. when you said it to us. Like, there's pressure and there's yeah, and there's, yeah. Because yes. my 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 way of being, and I think Eritrea knows this. I'm like, can we just all be like? I feel like Mary's really passionate, nice, but she be. I will, I will, if I have to, but I don't like to, I don't think we should have to be like in each other's faces like that, but we have to sometimes. And it really, do you do the thing, do you do the Latina thing where it's like, sometimes you open your mouth and your mom comes out. That's (laughs) what my mom said. She's like, I'm like, 
it's you. So hey, that, I, I, I got news for y'all. That's not just a Latina thing. I, uh, I do that too. <laughs> Anita does come out of my mouth every now and then. Yeah. Um, isn't it wild? When you're like, yeah. Oh, no, because yeah, no, yeah. my mom would always be like, you better get the interpreter or you better like this. Like she was never. Um, that's something that I also, maybe we could talk about it more offline, but I've always wondered like if it was just my Latina mom that was so like, we have rights and you're not about to treat me no way, even if I don't speak English. Like you mm-hmm. work for me through Medicaid, but you still work for me. So like stuff like that, that I wonder if like just it's in them as women coming to this country to be like, I'm going to do what I can for my daughter, even if I don't have all the resources, I'm going to find them. Stuff yeah. like that. So that's beautiful that your mom did that for you too. I like that. <laughs> Mary, I think both Eritrea and I agree that this has been just an amazing conversation. And I think we could probably go four or five more hours on each of these individual <laughs> topics. So I definitely want to invite you back uh, to sure. kind of, ha- because a-, a lot of what you've been talking about today is something that we touch on, but because we're not experts, uh, and we're kind of going through our own journeys with mindfulness. Uh, yeah. You know, mindfulness in everything is such a an amazing skill to develop. Uh, and you know, specifically with diabetes, I think people with diabetes and people with chronic illnesses are just so much more in tune with their body because they have to be. We have to advocate for ourselves, not just publicly, but also privately and internally. And like, what do I need right now? And I and I would challenge people listening to ask yourself what you need more often outside your diabetes as well. Uh, what you need in your relationships, what you need from your, uh, you know, doctors, what you need from your boss, uh, what you need just in general, because Mm -hmm. when you start to have that curiosity, which is something else that you talked about, it, it opens you up to realize that like, you know, maybe we're never going to have it all figured out. And that's something that I think I've been trying to reconcile. And I've talked at length about this year of you know, kind of my journey of like really reconciling that we're as we as humans only live about 4,000 weeks and life is sort of just one insoluble problem after another, after another. And if it's diabetes today, it's going to be something else tomorrow. And then diabetes is going to come back up again because it obviously doesn't go away. So, um, you know, giving yourself a little bit of grace and space, uh, to, you know, to, to navigate through that as a human. So, you know, I, I again, I, I we're gonna have you back. We're gonna have to coordinate how you know how often and make sure that we're you know bringing you in as, as a correspondent uh, because this has just been really valuable. I think um, as we kind of close today's interview, I want to be mindful of time mm-hmm. for people who are struggling. Advice to people who are struggling uh, with diabetes, uh, and then also therapy resources that you could recommend, uh, and especially for people who don't maybe have as much access as Eritrea and I, uh, and who are maybe underinsured or uninsured. Yes, yeah, so. Finding the right people is important. We don't actually always have those resources at the tip of our fingers. Um, so if you're a person that has like government funded um, insurance, right? So I know in California, it's Medi-Cal. Um, and n- normally every county in every state has uh, a, a county funded uh, mental health and counseling centers um, that we can find. There's also organizations like NAMI, um, NAMI.org, N-A-M-I.org. Um, there's, gosh, I wish I had a list I can send you. Maybe you guys can add it yeah. to your show notes. Um, I can email it to you guys. Um, You're a pro, you get it. Show notes. Yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> there's definitely organizations out there. There's There are sliding scale clinics. There are, there, like myself, I, I am private pay, so I don't take insurance, but I do offer a sliding scale. 
Um, but that sliding scale, those tend to be folks that I see more long-term. So those, those spots aren't always open and you can always ask a provider um, that question for sure. Like, do you offer sliding scale? This is what I can pay. Um, for, for folks that use an out-of-network provider that uh, maybe their insurance doesn't have an open therapist um, that has availability when you need it, um, you can check with your insurance about a super bill, which is basically an itemized receipt of all your sessions um, that you would have in a month with a therapist. And you can ask your insurance provider, hey, um, I there's this therapist, their name is Tom. Um, this is their... Um, their license information, and I want to work with them. What what is your reimbursement rates if I go with an out of network provider, um, and I re request a super bill? Um, so that's kind of like the language you want to use with your provider to see if they they would reimburse you after you submit that super bill to your insurance. So there are certainly options, um, and most and and also another thing, most colleges throughout the United States offer because they are training facilities. They offer low, lower feed um, counseling um, to students and non-students um, in the communities where the colleges are. Um, and one of the reasons is because they are training sites. Um, so they're not mm. charging folks to see a therapist in training. Thank you for that. And, and yeah. just to reiterate, yes, we will include all of those in the show notes. Um, mm. I jotted them down, but we'll also send uh, you a follow-up just to make sure we didn't miss anything. Yeah, of course. Um, and then I guess just I mean sort of, it. we mean it. You will be back. We're telling the listeners okay. now. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Yes, this is I'm so great. Us. I, yes. you know, I, I, again, I, I guess just as a closing note for today's episode, we give a, you know, we I try to put people in in their shoes when they were first diagnosed. I think you obviously were were very young, so maybe that's not as applicable. But just advice with somebody out there who's listening to this and has been, uh, you know, struggling with. The, the weight of a chronic illness, struggling with, you know, all of the things that come along with it, anxiety, depression, uh, body image, eating, eating challenges. Yeah. What advice would you give for people with diabetes who are struggling? I would definitely say that it's okay to feel that everything sucks and it might feel like it sucks for a while. Um, but there are people who who want to support you. There are people in this world who have felt very similarly to you. Um, and you don't have to compare your diagnosis to anybody else. Like even within the three of us, the way that you live with diabetes, it may not be the way that I do, and that's perfectly okay. Um, and the way that I advocate and you advocate or someone else doesn't have to advocate, it's okay. Um, it's okay if it sucks. It's okay to grieve it. It's okay to be super angry, um, to feel like life isn't fair. Big time. And I also want to tell you that it's not always going to be that way because we all have our moments with events and crappy stuff that happen in our life, but we can also certainly learn to live with it. I would definitely not be a therapist if goodness doesn't come out if healing doesn't come out from our lived experiences because this job would be all kinds of horrible if goodness um and healing didn't come after the pain yeah. well i couldn't pick a, a better note to end this episode on um i believe that i can mary is fine y'all by the way she's very pretty i just thought you should know i was like pretty smart all of it all of it so thank you so much i could listen to you talk about mental health 
and educate us all day long. I can't wait for you to come back. And now, Rob, I'm sorry to have taken that from you, but I had to, I had to say it. I had to let the people know. Check her out on Instagram. Great. <laughs> Great commentary, also very nice looking. Check yeah, it don't out. send me curvy DMs. I'm not interested. No, don't, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, don't Boundaries, do that. Please. <laughs> uh, but she is Mary Mosher Therapy on Instagram. We'll include her yeah. handle in the show notes. And Mary, yeah. again, thank you for your time of and uh, for your insight and and for all that you do uh, for people with diabetes. And you'll be back. Yeah, happy to. Thank you both.